Hello, welcome to the Holistic 30s podcast. How are you, Primo? I'm doing excellent, Prima. How are you? I'm pretty good. Are you nervous about this new project? Yes, a little bit. I just went to the bathroom two times. I will pretend you didn't say that <laughs> like five minutes ago. But yes, yes, uh, I'm also very excited about this new thing coming up. Um, so what's the Holistic 30s? The Holistic 30s. We've been talking about this for what, like a month, two months now? No, like probably three months. Three months, yeah. So holistic 30, holistic, um, that means like a holistic approach, a whole approach to life, meaning um, physical, uh, spiritual, mind, body, and spirit, right? Um, so what we're trying to do is bring awareness to the audience and our listeners to how you can be a overall healthy person. Well, first of all, I'm jumping one step. Very important. I want to introduce you to my cousin, primo slash bestie, um, Eliseo Jacob Flores, who is also my coach. We work out together and he has helping me to improve my workout <clears throat> experiences because as you can see, I'm new at this. Well, I'm not new anymore. I'm still learning. But yeah, welcome, Primo. Well, thank you so much, Anais. And um, it is my great pleasure to introduce my prima, my uh, best friend, my workout partner. She is a beast at working out, people. You yep. Guys, yeah, she's a beast at working out. And uh, Anais Garcia, my co-host here. Yes. Yes. All righty. <clears throat> so we started this podcast. The main reason is because I have a school project. It's coming up, and I need to start working it, to be honest. Just trying to get naked. I'm trying to do my best, um, but also because uh, me and my cousin, we always talk a lot about everything and anything. Sometimes we actually start working out just to be talking about life, and we are both in our 30s. How old are you, Theo? Primo. Yeah. <laughs> Another important thing from this, you're not my <laughs> She, uh, <laughs> we're gonna use this. Look. Yeah, I'm not her. Ah, bloopers. Uh, this is this is one for the people. <laughs> oh I'm my not her God. I am her cousin. Um, but yeah, the reason we already went to the, into the reason that we call it holistic. Yes. And we're calling it 30 because we're both in our 30s. Uh, I am 31 and a half. And that is a lie. Nope, not true. I'm actually 35. <laughs> you forgot how old you are. Or I just turned 30 you this just year. Turned 30 years. Yeah. So yeah. 30 I'm, is I'm excited. Also, I have to mention very important thing that I might be speaking Spanish in this podcast. Porque yo también hablo español y hablo más español que inglés. So sometimes I don't know how to explain myself. So I'll be speaking Spanish. Spanglish. Spanglish podcast for all our family who I'm pretty sure are going to be the only listeners so, or audience. So catch this. So <clears throat> I speak Spanish too, but my dominant language is English. Yeah. Uh, but sometimes for whatever reason, I get a little chutish, right? And yeah. I can't, I can't spit out what I'm trying to say in English. So I'll throw in a Spanish word too. Uh, question. Um, yes. Is it okay to uh, curse a little bit sometimes? If I have yes. To? Uh, I think not in this first one. Why? Because it's the one I'm turning into my professor. <laughs> okay. <laughs> But um, I don't think he minds if I keep um, recording ourselves and we start cursing sometimes because I do I do say a lot of bad words Slips in Spanish. Slips Happens, you know, we're not perfect yeah. and that's perfect. And now like Netflix and all this stuff, you know, they use, it's real language. It's the language that we use. It's not, who doesn't? Come on. All right, so, <clears throat> okay, after we introduce ourselves and everything, now um, it's time to talk about our topic. Our today's topic is called um, Addict Meditation. What's Addict Meditation, Primo? Active Meditation. So, <clears throat> I don't know, I thought about this one for a little bit of time. I think uh, the definition of just meditating alone is pretty broad, right? Um, I think that for most people, when they think about meditating, they think about like closing their eyes and, and 
humming, you know, um, and then bringing the fingers <laughs> together and um, not trying to think. That's the traditional approach. It's um, you're trying to clear your mind and you're trying to not think about anything at all. Um, but from how is that possible? Honestly, for me, it's a very hard thing because I think it's part of that. Uh, I have a lot of anxiety, so my mind is always thinking about everything all at the same time, and it's very hard for me to concentrate. The only time I feel like I can concentrate is when I'm sleeping, <laughs> and I don't think that's meditation at all. And it could be close, I mean, similar to meditation because in some way you're like doing nothing not thinking but um i can meditate it's really hard for me but what's next i'm sorry interrupt you but i mean i that's the thing is that i think that the word meditation it can mean so many different things it can take on so many different uh definitions so for me what meditating is is getting out of the physical self and going inward and getting in touch with your spiritual side um and there's very like a whole bunch of different ways to do it i don't think that the traditional way of just you know sitting with your legs crossed and, and not thinking about stuff is the only way to do it um active meditation to me is just a, a wide variety of things you can um You can really access it. It's like a, it's like accessing a, a altered state of consciousness. And for me, you know, I'm not the type of person that just like sits down and just clears my mind and doesn't think about stuff. For me, it's like, uh, I don't know if you've heard of like different, uh, that our brain operates on different brain waves, right? So there's, yeah. there's beta, there's alpha, there's theta, delta, and gamma. And for me, uh, meditating is just, getting into an altered state of consciousness so catching one of those brain waves and just riding with it um so it's it it's so broad there's so many different ways and definitions what happens to me it happens to me that when i'm working out sometimes like ideas come to my mind like mm -hmm. oh what about this yeah. and it's i think like that happened when you meditate I, I'm not thinking about anything. I'm not thinking about like, oh, I have the check engine light on my card since two weeks ago. It's true. You do? <laughs> you should get that fixed. <laughs> I know. But um, like I start worrying about what's happening in the outside world. And I, I just um, connect with my body. And that's a way to meditate. And actually, that's a way to meditate for me that makes me feel like connected not only to my body but also to my spirit you know and and i think like when somebody meditates incredible things come to your mind yeah. i think for me one form of active meditation is when i run true um, yeah running to me uh, has become like a very important uh part of my workout regimen we're both runners we, yes yes we are we run a lot Um, in very dangerous neighborhoods, which, uh, you know, Century, Western, Imperial, stay away from those areas. But, oh uh, my God. <laughs> but uh, see, okay, so uh, I don't really, I think I heard this in uh, like a YouTube video or I might have read it somewhere, but uh, this one person that works out a lot, I think it might have been David Goggins, uh, he says that before he goes on a long run, he'll ask himself questions that has a hard time coming up with the answers to questions that uh, you know that elude him and he'll go on long runs and um, if you're familiar with like people that run marathons they say that uh, they get like a runner's high basically to me what that is you're just like in a different state of consciousness you know, your brain oh, wow yeah your brain starting to release like all these chemicals and you know you're you're, you're just triggering uh different brain waves yeah, in, in your mind And so to me, uh, I, I, I do that a lot. When I run, I'll ask myself questions about my future that are uncertain. And a lot of times, like you said, when you work out or when you're meditating, the answers come to you. That will happen for me. Also, what I do is uh, I've learned that we attract what we think. True. So when we think about the future, like one very famous uh, 
way that uh, people, uh, a lot of experts will recommend to meditate uh, or to create your futures by thinking about what you want your future to look like as if it is right now, like in the existing, the current reality. Um, so like, does it happen to you that when you get lost in one of those thoughts, all of a sudden- I'll lay on the streets? <laughs> no, no, I'm saying like, you'll be running, right? Yeah. And like, we run a lot of the same routes, but like, let's say you're thinking about being like senior, maybe senior, whatnot. And then all of a sudden you're like on this like other major street, you just ran a mile and you don't know how- Oh yeah. Happened. You stop um, feeling tired. You stop uh, thinking that you're running and then it happens that your your mind is disconnected from reality like drugs yeah, well yeah, yeah. Is, is that like seriously that works like a drug well, for your body no, okay so it's it's well known that when you're working out your brain i have never drugs. tried drugs oh well it's coffee a drug it is right well yeah but it I doesn't guess. give you the effect though well, it, it's um, working out is similar to doing hard drugs. <laughs> okay. Whoa. Okay, no, check this out. Check well, this out. that's why it's addictive. Yeah. I mean, people get addictive to working out. They, okay, so a lot, not everybody, but a lot of former drug addicts, they they're big on working out. Why? Is because... that hold on, hold on? Sorry that I'm interrupting you. Is that why people in prison? <laughs> Are so <laughs> are so strong because there is no drugs in there. Uh, I mean, okay, so but I lost my train of thought. But what I was trying to say, yeah, was, it was my fault. Earlier, um, okay, no. So what I was talking about was um, heavy drug use. Okay, so what drugs do? They release certain chemicals in the brain. Yes, uh, endorphins is one of the main ones, and. That's why using drugs is so addictive and why it feels so good because it triggers your brain to, yeah. you know, it, it releases massive amount of, uh, of endorphins and other chemicals that make you feel good. When you're working out, it's the same exact thing, but not in the same dosage. So when you're doing a hard drug such as cocaine or whatnot, it's releasing massive amounts of endorphins in your brain and other chemicals as well. When you're working out, when you're into a serious workout, you your brain is releasing the same chemicals, just not at the same dosage. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, it definitely is addictive, and um, it definitely it, it gets you in an altered state of mind. Like you know, you, you just uh, you go into a happy place. For me personally, that, that's what happens to me. Right? I go into a happy place, and that's why he's a co-host because he knows many things i know a little bit of stuff just you know okay i want to ask you a question i think i already told you about this but i how or why did you start working out uh, why first let's start with the why why hold on now let me put another question before that question all right then let's line them up you know i'm not the best interviewer but i think this is a good question do you used to work out like all the time? Okay, so I grew up playing baseball and uh, baseball is very important to me. It's a sport, uh, yes. Yeah, it's a sport. I, grew, I played baseball, a little bit of uh, basketball, some football. So as a kid, as a youth growing up, I, I was working out. Um, I didn't know it at the time, but now looking back at it, it was like a coping mechanism for me. Sports sure. was very important for me uh, to just help deal with you know the difficulties that one runs across in childhood um i ran a little bit cross country i ran track so that that was very important to me and it, it made me very happy it was uh i just felt like i was expressing myself when i was participating in sports uh then in my 20s i stopped working out i gained a bunch of weight uh i was, I was a little fat why <laughs> why why because i just stopped taking care of myself like i stopped doing the things that made me happy mm -hmm. and uh and i got caught in the hustle. how old were you by that time uh at, at what time when i was like when you start working out, out oh when yes. i started working out yeah. okay so i don't know like I, I went on like i went through ups and downs peaks and valleys okay. through my 20s i'll gain weight lose weight gain weight yeah lose weight. 
I'm a small dude. I'm only five foot five. Yeah. And at my heaviest, I weighed 185 pounds. So that, Damn. yeah, I look like a Ninja Turtle. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, was, I was pretty, I was a little butterball, dude. Uh, I, was, I was pretty fat. I don't remember you that fat. No? No. Yeah, well, good. I have pictures though. But uh, yeah, I got pictures. So anyway, so then like um, I, I've been through like three serious relationships. After each relationship, yeah. I would lose a bunch of weight. Because of the sadness. Uh, Who doesn't? I, I think because of the happiness. I, oh, <laughs> oh, okay. The relief? No. no. Do, you, do you love someone and you love weight? <laughs> no, I think that, I don't know, for whatever reason, that's, uh, that's very common. Like when people come out of a serious relationship, all of a sudden they're yeah. onto their workout regimen and they lose a bunch of weight. Well, actually, <laughs> one, one of the reasons, not the main reason, why I started working out with you is because, yeah, I went through a breakup. And yeah, you work out with only quebradas girls for some time. Those no, I, I, I finished that chapter of my life already. I think I'm fine. I, I, I think. No, I'm, I'm totally fine. Um, to work out has helped me a lot. Like to deal with sadness, depression, uh, madness, because you know you go through all those steps when you have a, a breakup or a separation. But yeah, you were saying, why did you start working out? So for me, uh, I guess kind of like along the same lines as you. So the this last time that I started working out, like for real, for real, and like I latched onto it and I didn't let it go, was the last time when I broke up with my baby mom. So after that- No names, please. Oh, okay, no names. Just uh, <laughs> the end, baby mom, baby mom. Yeah. And uh, none. Yeah, so we broke up or whatnot, and I just, I, I just, you know what? I had very low self-esteem. I, I didn't like what I saw when I looked in the mirror, and I just went through this phase where I was like, uh, well, if you don't like what you see, change it. And I was going through a whole bunch of like problems, personal problems in my life. It was like getting ready to be turned upside down. I ended up like going to jail, going to rehab. Bunch no, of were you in jail? You already know. I know, but <laughs> I don't think the audience know about it. But yeah, whoa, whoa well, that's going to be another topic. You know, and very interesting. So keep going, please. So, um, yeah, it's just I basically I had very low self-esteem. I didn't like I, I knew that I needed to make a series of changes. Um, and I heard this from a motivational speaker. Uh, who said, if if you don't, I think it was Louise Hay, actually, she says, if you don't like where you are or who you are, it, actually, she says, if you hate yourself, if you hate yourself or you don't like yourself or whatever, um, the, good, the good news is that your perception of yourself is only a thought and thoughts can be changed. So yeah. whatever you think about yourself, you can change it. And she says, at whatever avenue that you start in, whether it's physical, whether it's uh, spiritual, or whether it's uh, mental, whatever it is, just start. Because, and, and I believe that they're all interconnected. All of them are interconnected. If, uh, if you start working out, you're gonna, you're gonna worry about, well, what do I eat? That's natural because they go hand in hand. Yeah. And a I'm lot always of, hungry when I work out. Yeah, but you don't wanna ruin the workout. No. right like you don't want to go to the gym and spend two hours with me and sweat and burn like a thousand calories and then come home and eat a torta right or like... well i have done that <laughs> i didn't know i could but you know what I, i know i understand the point it's like it's why you're gonna mess up something that it was really hard for you you know i uh, like you say sweating working out and just like to destroy it with bad food i right. get it i totally right. get it right. yeah so it, it's all interconnected and um, so that's how i started yeah, I but started. hey let me tell you this mm -hmm. i made healthy torta so you do i, I tried do. one of them very good yeah that that was an arepa that wasn't a torta but oh, that was having right. a yeah right. probably an, uh, a torta from venezuela but yeah okay keep going again okay uh but yeah i was just saying that it, it's all interconnected so it all that's how it started for me and when i started taking care of my body 
for whatever reason, like I just started uh, concentrating on my mind as well. And that's when I picked up the book and I started reading and then I just picked up this like voracious appetite to just learn, 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 learn new stuff. And I got all into metaphysical things and that's why you and I have these crazy conversations all yeah. the time. Yeah, you know, it brings to mind something that Wayne Dyer says. In, uh, oh, I love that guy. Wayne Dyer was the best, and uh, he wrote in his book uh, *Power of Intention* that maybe we're not human beings having a spiritual experience, but it's more like we're spiritual beings having a human experience. It's my primo, but anyways, yes. Yeah, but I mean, it's okay. So it's crazy. So I, I, I mentioned that I was locked up, right? I was institutionalized, and from march no from august 2018 through march of 2019 no march of uh september of 2019 sorry i'm getting my dates mixed up last year uh yeah last year and something that really 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 helped me so at this time and actually still to this day i wasn't i wasn't able to see my daughter right and uh when when you're locked up nighttime is a very lonely time and especially like Aww. yeah especially right before you go to bed and i would think of my little girl all the time all the time all the time i would get super sad and depressed um but it, talking about meditation because for me this was you could call it an active form of meditation i i would think about my little girl her name is carmine and Hi, carmine. i i would imagine that she was like i would be laying in my bed you know laying on the side and I would imagine that she was right there with me. I even put my arms out like I was hugging her and I started talking to her. Oh, that's cute. And I would send her, send her my love from a distance because I think that, I think that we're all interconnected at a certain level. And I think that it's, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't think that, I don't believe in coincidences anymore. Right? So, for me, it's just, I can't explain it, but I've always felt so much better after doing that. And I think that um, people, if, if people can always receive our love, even if it's at a distance. Yeah, you know, it happens to me. I have friends. My best friend lives in Mexico, and I don't get to see her that often, probably once a year. And actually this year, I haven't seen her. Um, with the pandemic and everything but i feel like i'm still very close to her and even though because she just became a mom this year even though we're not close physically or we don't talk that often um uh, we are both like very connected with each other and every time we get the chance to talk to each other we know we still have the same love for each other i mean our relationship doesn't change um, because the distance has it ever happened to you that you're like you're thinking about her and then she oh my god all the time and it happens to her too yeah. and and she's like oh bruja which is right yeah which? I was like <laughs> Te iba a llamar. Oh, I was about to call you and you called me first and it's it's like it's not. I, I'm calling her in my mind or oh, I don't know that's yeah. super weird well, but that's, like that, I think that's a uh, that's a part of active meditation when you're thinking wow. about somebody and all of a sudden you get a phone call or like I, um, I, I was, I was in a rehab, right. And I was, uh, I wrote a letter to one of my best friends that I was in jail with. He was in prison at this time. I wrote him and then he wrote me back and he told, he goes, cause you know, he's, he's a gangster. So he's like, Carnal, okay. I, <laughs> he's like, Carnal, I swear I called you with my mind. I, I was thinking about you last week and then I got your letter today. Wow. So I don't, you know, I that's a form of active meditation to me when you're connecting spiritually True. to somebody like that. True. Well, well, Primo, we're getting close to our, our, how can I call it, the end of this podcast because I can only record for 30 minutes and I just find out. <laughs> so, uh, before we finish this topic, we're going to have a section called, uh, what did you recommend me? Actually, well, I'm going to find another name for that, that, um, that kind of recommendation. But we want to recommend uh, to the audience uh, either a book, 
song, music, artist, food, whatever it comes to your mind. You have 30 seconds to recommend the audience something that you like a lot right now. Recommend something? Okay, the best book that I've read this year is called The Secret of the Ages by Robert Collier. It was written over 100 years ago, but it's so practical. You have to pick up that book and read it. Okay, cool. All right. So, uh... I recommend to visit my Instagram page called Anais Garcia Flores 27, where I share my uh, baking recipes and try one of the recipes because they're really good, right? Yes, they're the best. They're I, bomb. I am her guinea pig as far as everything that she <laughs> bakes. And, uh, it's, it's amazing. Alrighty, well, thank you everyone. Hope you have a good day, a good night, a good evening, and. Uh, we'll talk next time. Until next time. Bye. Bye. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Uncovering the Ancient Maya, a podcast dedicated to bridging the gap between ancient Maya scholars and broader public audience interested in the ancient Maya civilization. We are your hosts, Jackie and Leslie. We are anthropology majors at California State University, Dominguez Hills, concentrating in archaeology. Over the coming episodes, we will introduce you to archaeologists, art historians, and ancient writing scholars, all who specialize in studying the ancient Maya civilization of Mexico, Guatemala, Belize, Honduras, and El Salvador. We will ask them about their recent research projects and most spectacular finds, providing an opportunity for all of us to learn the most up-to-date information about the ancient Maya civilization straight from the experts who study it. So today we're happy to bring our guest, Dr. Kenneth Felixson. He's an assistant professor of anthropology at Cal State University Dominguez Hills. Dr. Felixson earned his undergraduate degree in anthropology and history from Brown University, and then has his master PhD degree from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He is an archeologist specializing in human environment relationships and ancient technology in Northern Mayan lowlands. Today, we will be speaking with Dr. Felixson about his research on ancient Mayan burnt lime production. Uh, we will be covering the lime production in Maya, Cook region, and experimental pig kiln. Uh, this is going to cover the area in Cook region and the northern lowlands in the Yucatan Peninsula. So welcome, Dr. Felixson. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to do this. So we have a few more questions about the production and everything that went through uh, for this article. Uh, why was the lime powder so important for the pre-Hispanic Maya? That's a great question. So burnt lime is pretty much just limestone that has been cooked at a really high temperature and it breaks down into a compound called quicklime. And then you add some water to it and then it turns into a powder called burnt lime that can be used for so many things. The ancient Maya and even the the modern Maya use burnt lime for dietary purposes. They use it to nishtamalize the corn. Soaking corn in burnt lime infused water makes it easier to grind into dough. And it also releases nutrients that can be absorbed by the body, which makes maize actually nutritious. Otherwise, it's not very nutritious. And then for architectural purposes, lime could be used for so many things. Uh, for the mortar that held buildings together, for the bright white stucco that coated the buildings, allowing people to paint them, and also just to keep everything clean. If you're paving plazas with lime, instead of just having dirt there, it's a lot more sanitary. So lime was just hugely important to so many aspects of life in the Maya world. Wow, that's super interesting. Um, can you Go a little bit more into detail about how the lime powder is still being used today by modern the modern Maya community. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so the main way that people are still using lime today is for the nishtamalization process, uh, whether they're actually doing it themselves at home or buying it from the tortilleria down the road where they're actually doing the nishtamalization. All it really requires is an overnight soaking for 12 to 24 hours in the lime water to make the corn not only easier to grind, but also super nutritious. And so unfortunately, lime is not used as often anymore for construction purposes. People are importing what we call Portland cement from factories, uh, but 
yeah, so they're still using lime for dietary purposes more so than for construction purposes. Yeah, so this is still being used currently and it's amazing how pre-Hispanic pre Maya were able to produce all of this. Um, so which brings us to another point, um, how, what is exactly a pip kiln? Oh yeah, so, um, so the article that you two have read is uh, about my experimental research in trying to figure out how the ancient Maya were making lime because we know that you need to cook the limestone for an extended period of time at a really high temperature, over 800 degrees Celsius. And unfortunately, just cooking limestone on the surface of the bedrock in the Maya area doesn't leave much of a trace. Like if they did that thousands of times, tens of thousands of times in the ancient world, we would not be able to find any evidence of it because they take the lime away. There might be a burn signature on the surface, but it's really hard to find that. So uh, what, what I and my colleagues have found in the region where I work in the Northern Yucatan called the Poop region is a, a series of ring structures that appear to be pit kilns, meaning that they're semi underground. There's a ring of stones surrounding a central pit or a depression where we believe they were making the lime. And I did a couple of experimental studies to see that that, that could actually work. And you did say that you went ahead and did some experimental studies. Um, what exactly did that intake? Yeah, yeah. Can you kind so, of walk us through the process of how would you get it? Yeah, of course, yeah. So. First of all, I, I, we, we got this idea that these, these structures were in fact used specifically for making lime through archeological excavations of the structures in which we found a lot of burnt pieces of limestone that may have been partially cooked during a, uh, a lime production episode. And then also there were some layers of what appeared to be burnt lime at the bottom of the pits, which is a clear signature that these pits got to, these pit kilns got to be hot enough to actually transform limestone into lime. Um, so when we had this idea that these structures were in fact used to make burnt lime, the other question was why? Why are these kind of pit kilns showing up in this region of the Pook and maybe a couple of other regions in the North, but not everywhere? And one of the ideas that we came up with was that these may have been more fuel efficient than other ways of making lime because you need a lot of wood to burn to make the lime. But if these pit kilns actually contained the heat and protected the burn from the wind, they may have been developed to be more fuel efficient to manage the wood resources. And so we wanted to test that hypothesis, but we did not want to use the ancient structures because that's cultural patrimony of Mexico. That's an archeological feature. You don't wanna end up destroying it for your experiments. So instead we created an experimental pit kiln. Um, so my collaborators from the local towns in the Puk region, uh, specifically Yasha Chen and Kankab, we got together and actually built a pit kiln modeled on the ancient pit kilns. So that required using some modern tools that the ancient Maya did not use, including iron bars. And it was still so difficult to actually excavate out a pit through solid bedrock even using iron bars, the ancient Maya would have probably been using stone tools, which would have taken even longer and been even more difficult. But it took us about two weeks to excavate a decently sized pit kiln and then build up the edges with the stone that we had excavated. And so uh, we actually then gathered all of the raw materials, including all of the wood from surrounding forests, that we wanted fresh wood specifically so it had a high moisture content so that it would burn slower and hotter. And fortunately, one of my collaborators down there, an older gentleman, had actually seen lime being made using an above ground pyre, a stack of woods, a stack of wood back when he was a kid. And so he graciously adapted that method into the pit kiln. So he built a pyre a stack of wood with the little pieces of limestone on top within our kiln and we fired it. And <laughs> unfortunately, 15 minutes into our first firing episode, it started to rain, which is uh, 
not something that was supposed to happen during the dry season in Yucatan. It was very unfortunate. Um, so it kind of ruined the experiment. Uh, but fortunately, we were able to do another experiment a couple of months later, and this time it did not rain. And so the pit kiln burned for about 20 hours through the night. And in the morning, all of the limestone that we had put in there was transformed into quicklime. And then we just let it sit for a while and it absorbed moisture from the air and then it rained. So it actually transformed the quicklime into burnt lime. And then we had a massive amount of burnt lime as a result. So the experiment was a success in showing that the kilns could be used to make burnt lime. Uh, but then the real question was, were they more fuel efficient or more efficient in the use of wood than the other methods of making lime? So we had calculated the amount of wood and the amount of stone that we put into the experiment and then the amount of burnt lime that we got out of it. And it turns out that yes, this method is at least 20% more fuel efficient than making lime above ground by stacking wood above ground and then putting the limestone on top of that. And so the pit kiln that we made was actually kind of shallow compared with the uh, pit kilns from the archeological record, the ancient ones. So we're hypothesizing that the deeper the pit kiln goes, possibly even the more fuel efficient it, go, it gets. So we're hoping to potentially do more experiments with the pit kiln that we've already created. That's exciting. I know that you were talking about a double ring in the future mm -hmm. uh, as an experiment. So that would be really awesome to see how that turns out. Um, do you have any memorable memories about the whole process? <laughs> That's a good question. So I, it was just really fun. I mean, one of the reasons why I wanted to test um, whether these ancient pit kilns were in fact used for burnt lime and more fuel efficient was just it's, it's exciting to do experimental work and actually use ancient technology and have it come to life again uh, to test your hypotheses. And so one of the really cool things during the experiment was having uh, Don Gabriel, who was the older gentleman who helped orchestrate and, and oversee the construction of the kiln because he gave some specific offerings during the construction of the kiln. He knew what specific uh, materials you need to use to ensure a good burn. So halfway through building the stack of wood inside the pit kiln, he offered some dry corn cobs, which were supposed to ensure a dry period for the burn. The first time it didn't work as well, but it worked better the second time. The dry corn cobs kept the rain away. Um, and then he offered some dried red chilies, chili peppers, which was to evoke the heat of the fire and make sure it burned really hot, hot enough to turn limestone into quicklime. And then finally, he offered some salt, which this pure white salt is meant to evoke the pure white burnt lime that is supposed to result from the burn. And it turns out this kind of offering is given throughout the Maya area when you're making lime. So he knew exactly what we needed to do. And that's why the experiment was successful in the end. Oh my God, that's amazing that you were able to find Don Gabriel and actually have him like do this whole entire process in front of you. I'm sure that as an anthropologist, it was something fascinating that you were able to like firsthand witness, right? Yeah, it really was. And I mean, I'm so glad because Don Gabriel was a little bit too old to do archeological excavations these days. He had been working with my team like back in the day before I was actually working there with my, he was working with my colleagues. And so he had experience working around the archeological features, but it's actually because I was working with a couple of his sons that year, they told me that their dad had actually seen this kind of line being made when he was a kid, even though they don't do it anymore locally. So it really worked out. And I mean, that's just another um, reason why it's so important to just really get involved and engaged with the local communities beyond in this, kind of employer-employee relationship for an archaeological field season, just getting to know everyone much better and going and hanging out in Kankab and Oshkutskab and, and Yasha Chen can lead to these kind of side adventures, but also this knowledge that you otherwise would not get in the day-to-day -day operations of an archaeological excavation. Yeah, definitely. Those, those connections that you make with your team definitely are something else. And it's awesome because like you said, a lot of the history that we have about like the Maya 
not all of it is written down. So it's kind of nice to have the, these stories, these traditions continue to be passed down and still survive till this day. Um, so that kind of brings me to another question. Um, you were talking about um, the pyre, right? Mm -hmm. Correct me if I'm pronouncing that wrong. No, that's cool. <laughs> but would you go ahead and maybe just for some of our listeners who are not familiar with it, kind of list some of the key points, um, the differences between an open air wood prior and like a pit kiln? For sure, yeah, that's an important point to clarify. Really what we were doing here at the heart of this study was comparing whether creating lime above ground or in a pit kiln would be a more fuel efficient way of doing it. Because we know lime was just so important to so many aspects of ancient Maya life. We know that they were making so much of it, but we also know that during the colonial era, uh, during the Spanish colonial era after the, after the Spanish invasion, they were making lime by building these huge pyres, which are these stacks of wood above ground and then placing tiny fist-sized pieces of limestone on top of the wood. And they constructed these pyres in a way that they would light them in the center. And so they'd burn slowly outward from the center and collapse in on themselves on an as, in, the, in a way that made them like an above ground oven. But in order to actually efficiently make lime that way, you need a lot of wood because it's exposed to the elements um, and there's wind coming in and you don't have any sides to this oven. It's just the wood itself. So you need a lot of wood. So the thinking was that if you had to make as much lime as they did in ancient Maya civilization using that method, it would have required chopping down a lot of trees. So in the north, in the Puk region, and even further north near the, the, the capital of, Medi of uh, Yucatan State, Merida, they found other pit kilns that are these semi-subterranean ovens that probably did not have tops on them. They probably were open to the air, but at least the sides were underground. And so you had these built-in walls there. So if you built a pyre in the pit, then you'd have the heat retention properties of the walls around them and also protection from wind, which could also damage a burn. So the main difference between the pyre, above ground pyre and the pit kiln is the fact that the wood is placed in an enclosure, in an enclosed area and protecting it from elements and, and aiding in uh, heat retention. So in testing the utility and the actual efficiency of the pit kiln method, we were able to show that yes, less wood would have been necessary to make burnt lime in a pit kiln than on average in an above ground pyre. It's so interesting to think about how they were actually thinking of their resources and seeing how what worked best for them. Um, so it brings me to this question. Do you think that the pre-Hispanic Maya were aware of the importance of the fuel efficiency and the conservation of their resources? Oh, that's such a great question. Uh, so. The short answer is yes, definitely. And I, I, that's one of, the, one of the really exciting things I think about this study in particular. People think burnt lime, limestone, that's not very exciting. But it's kind of getting at this idea that a lot of people tend to think of the ancient Maya as mismanaging their resources and not really thinking about the long-term consequences of what they were doing to their environment. Some people have even said that they committed ecocide where they destroyed their environment and therefore destroyed themselves. But the creation and the use of these fuel efficient pit kilns shows that they were definitely thinking ahead and trying to conserve resources. Uh, we found that these pit kilns came into use or at least widespread use um, around 650 or 700 CE. So like 1,300 years ago. And then people continued living in that region for at least 200 years, 250 years after that, even when other parts of the Maya lowlands started to run into some trouble, uh, sites started to be abandoned in certain areas, populations moved away. Uh, in the Puk region where they had these pit kilns, the population continued for several more generations. And it's possible that the foresight and the active protection of their resources for things like making lime 
uh, was one of the contributing factors to the longevity of the sites in this region. So yeah, uh, definitely think that this is a good example of how the ancient Maya were thinking long-term about their resources and were taking steps to actively conserve them. Wow. <laughs> um, so I have a question for you since you just said that. You were saying that since they used the lime in their structures, it made them a lot more durable and it was able to like withstand many of the years. Um, so if we were able to find the lime inside of these architectural like buildings, um, why do you think that we have such little evidence of lime production methods from the pre-Hispanic Maya? That's a great question. So part of the answer is just that for a long time, we weren't sure where to look or what to look for in terms of lime production episodes, because all we knew was the method that used the above ground pyre. That's what people were using in the last 200, 300 years. So we knew that if you use an above ground pyre to make lime, nothing is left, just a, maybe a small burn mark on the surface. But if the forest grows up around everything, you're not really gonna be able to find those burn marks on the surface and there's no other materials that would tell you there was a burnt lime episode. So people didn't even try to look for locations where lime was made. Um, that's why these annular or ring structures that we're finding in the pook all over the place uh, are so important because this not only allows us to see how they were making lime, but where they were making lime and see where these lime production locations are on a broader landscape. So yeah, it just was difficult to know where they were making lime. And so that's why we didn't know much about the method, but we know that at least in parts of the Maya world, uh, we now know they were using these pit kilns that would have made lime production more efficient, um, but also we see how widespread it really was. Um, so do you have any plans of doing any future experiments currently or is still in the planning phase? Yeah, no, definitely. I would love to do some more experiments, especially with the pit kiln that we already have to make to maybe excavate it a little bit deeper bit by bit and see if the efficiency really does increase or maybe even build another one, a slightly different form to see uh, how that would affect the production of lime. Obviously the last two years have made it difficult to do any archeological research, uh, experimental or otherwise, getting down to Mexico has been difficult, but yeah, I definitely hope in the next couple of years to do some more experiments with the experimental pit kiln that we've created and come up with even some more specific data to see just how efficient lime production could have been in these things. That's so interesting. I would love to see that actual in real life, you know. <laughs> All right, so Dr. Seligson, it seems like you know a lot about the Maya community. So let me ask you, how did you get interested in the subject? Okay, yeah, that's a long story. Um, so I actually short had, <laughs> yeah, I'll try for the short version. I actually had no idea that I was going to get into archaeology, let alone Maya archaeology, until I was almost graduating from my undergraduate institution. I was still trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I knew I was super interested in the past, I was studying history, I was studying archaeology and anthropology more broadly, and one of my professors suggested that I go on an archaeological excavation, and it, it just so happened to be in the Maya area, and I was immediately hooked. Um, it also probably helped that my dad is from Mexico, from Mexico City, and throughout my life I'd been going down and visiting family down there, and we'd get to visit sites, uh, not necessarily in the Maya area, but in broader Mesoamerica. And so maybe subconsciously this focus on a Mesoamerican civilization was building in the back of my mind this whole time. Um, but I mean, there has been archeological research done in the Maya area now for over a hundred years. And yet there's still so much more to find out about the Maya. And there are thousands of archeological sites there. And one of the things that I'm trying to focus on today in particular or these days is shifting this narrative about the ancient Maya away from a focus on collapse, which is one of the more 
exciting, interesting things in the popular imagination about the Maya. What happened to the ancient Maya? Why are they not here anymore? Well, that's a misleading question, obviously, as you know, because there are millions of Maya people around today. Uh, but the classic Maya, their civilization flourished for over 700 years before there was a breakdown and transformation of their socio-political system uh, that people know as the collapse. So I want people to focus more on that than on the fact that, yeah, there was a breakdown at the end, but pretty much all civilizations have a period of breakdown at some point. So I think focusing on the amazing achievements of the classic Maya is a way to not only honor them, but also millions of Maya descendants around today in Eastern Mesoamerica and around the world in the, in the diaspora. Completely agree. So many people have the thought of the Mayan or the Maya people are gone. There's like nobody left, you know, so they don't have that information. So it's nice for people to, to bring this awareness to them just because the fact that yes, they're still there, they're still thriving. We still have some traditions left and hopefully they continue to pass down. Yeah, and that's why I'm so glad that you're doing this podcast because it'll give people a chance to learn more about the not only the achievements of the ancient Maya, but also the continuation of Maya traditions today and bring awareness to this fact that, uh, yeah, the Maya are not gone, the Maya are enduring, but also this idea that people have misconceptions about the ancient Maya. So hearing from people that actually work in the field, that um, can talk about their recent research and share what we know about the Maya will be great. So thank you. Thank you for doing this. Yes, thank you for coming on and being our first guest. Thank you, Dr. Seligson. Thank you all for checking out our first episode of the podcast. This podcast was produced by us, Jackie and Leslie, along with Anais Garcia in the consultation with Professor Ken Seligson of the Anthropology Department and Fernando Severino of the Communications Department at Cal State Dominguez. Our theme music was created by Shannon Gabrielle Hefley. We also would like to thank the CSUDH Bulletin for hosting our episodes.